Uh, please, will we just stand for a moment? And uh, turn to your neighbor and say something like, at least I'm not Leah. <laughs> <laughs> Or hello, good morning, nice to see you, something along those lines. <laughs> Wonderful, Let, let's, let's pray together, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word, and we pray that today you'll open up this strange story to us and enable us to understand what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do be seated, lovely to see you this morning. If you don't know me, my name's Richard, uh, Richard Moy, I'm the vicar here, and we're in a series in the life of a man called Jacob, the, whose name gets changed to Israel, who has 12 sons through four different women, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, a, a seismic person in history, and we're going to find out now how he, how he gets involved with the four women who become mothers to his 12 sons. And uh, this is a story that touches on the worlds of work and the worlds of romance, and as such, it's got all sorts of minefields in it. So I'm going to try and avoid too many vicar jokes and, uh, and see if we can navigate through this safely this morning. But if you were listening as the reading was given out, you'd have noticed some of the topic areas likely to come out. And so to go through this, we're going to look at four particular characters and, and one group of people. The character of Laban, the boss. Uh, I've called this talk Working for the Man, if you remember Bon Jovi. Uh, that'll bring back all sorts of memories for you. Um, and uh, then they've got the shepherds, and we've got Jacob, and then we've got the two sisters, Rachel and Leah. So let's work through. Here we have, firstly, Laban, the uncle. Jacob is a weak and vulnerable migrant who's made a journey 500 miles across treacherous terrain and turns up uh, at Laban's household. And Laban rushes out in verse 13 to meet him, his sister's son. He embraces him and kisses him and brings him back to his home. And Laban says to him, you're my own flesh and blood. Great introduction to Laban. But if you remember the story backwards, this isn't the first time that someone's come from Abraham's household to Laban. Just a couple of chapters ago, Laban is there when a servant of Abraham comes to their household and says, ooh, um, could Rebecca come home and marry us? And when he meets Rebecca back in those chapters, in chapter 24, he puts a nose ring on her, which sounds a bit painful, and bracelets. And uh, then in verse 53 of 24, he brings out gold and silver jewelry and clothing and costly gifts to her brother, to Laban, and for the, her mother. And he eats and drinks with them. So Laban's experience of someone from Abraham's household coming to him is one where he gets loads of money in return. So you're my flesh and blood. Welcome, Jacob. It's great to see you. Where's the presents? <laughs> you know, that, that relative. Sometimes if a, a relative comes to see my children, they have the where's the present sort of thing going on. And you're like, shh, get, get, get some manners, for goodness sake. And, and Laban's a bit like that. He is a greedy, materialistic character and knows how to look after number one. So much so that he's happy to marry off both his daughters to Jacob in return for seven years labor for each of them. He is the man with whom Jacob meets his match. The deceiver meets another deceiver 
and edges get knocked off Jacob throughout this story. So that's Laban, our first character. Second character are the shepherds who are out uh, looking after the sheep and being quite lazy as it happens as shepherds. I can remember one of my first jobs was working for a school where my father was on the senior management team. And my job was to work with the maintenance department. And it got to about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was quite surprised to see that it was tea break time. Uh, And uh, they they got out the the Sun newspaper and cups of tea. And tea break went on for uh, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, 50 minutes. And I was sort of like... uh, do you think we should get back to work now? And uh, that was really the wrong thing to say as a 17-year-old coming in on this maintenance department team. And Jacob kicks into these shepherds with something very similar. He says, look, guys, the sun's still high. Isn't it time for the flocks to be gathered? Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. This is the guy who joins your team at work, and you're like, oh, did he have to join us? <laughs> did, he, did he have to come along? It's like, work harder. He's a stranger. He's just met them. And all of his leadership savvy, all of his drive, all of his energy is projected onto this group of shepherds. And he's like, for goodness sake, why aren't you achieving anything with your life? Get on with it. So we get some real insights into who Jacob was through his interaction with the shepherds. But then we see what the shepherd's hobby is. Uh, they replied that, Uh, We can't go and um, do all this sort of stuff because we're waiting for other sheep to come along. Then come along the rest of the sheep. And they're managed by a shepherdess called Rachel. And she's a beauty. And we sort of realize why the shepherds have been hanging around being lazy. In comes their daily uh, eye candy. And they're staring at Rachel. They're probably wolf whistling at Rachel. We're like, ah. And... uh, and they say that it takes, you know, all these people to move a stone. It's the suggestion is that until all the shepherds are there, maybe, you can't move the stone out of the way. Are they going to just sit there and watch Rachel try and move the stone out of the way on her own? Is that their daily habit? Is that what they do? What does this girl feel like when she comes into their midst? Well, Jacob stirs up in sort of righteous indignation and goes and moves the stone away from the well, helps Rachel water her father's sheep, Uh, He kisses her, does his 90s man thing and begins to weep aloud uh, all over her. And uh, and then he tells her that he's a relative of hers after weeping all over her. (laughs) And and, uh, she goes off, gets her her dad, uh, and everything's quite happy. So here are the shepherds um, just doing their chore, doing their daily work. Uh, Caught up in sort of sexual harassment, maybe, and doing their thing. In to the story then, center stage is our Jacob. He's, he's done his sort of uh, getting involved with the shepherds thing. He's kissed Rachel, and now he goes to Laban's. It's clear that unlike Isaac, Isaac the servant who came for, to get Rebecca for Isaac, Jacob's come with nothing. Isaac sent him on this journey with, with nothing to bargain with. When Abraham was off uh, for, a, for a wife for his son, he sent loads of gifts Isaac sort of kicks Jacob out of the house. He's still fed up with him. So sort it out yourself, son. You've got my blessing. <laughs> but off you go. Make your own way in the world. And it means that Jacob's turned up empty-handed to his rather mean and manipulative uncle, Laban. And that Laban asks him a very loaded question in verse 15. Why, because you're a relative of mine, why should you work for me for nothing? <laughs> Now, that's quite a loaded question, isn't it? It assumes, firstly, that you're going to work for him. 
and that you're going to subordinate yourself to him. And what should your wages be? And Jacob, Laban, I think, can see, is already in love with Rachel, the eye candy at the well, the girl who's turned many heads already. She's lovely in form and beautiful, according to verse 17. And he says, well, I'll pay the bridal price for her. I'll do the seven years' labor for Rachel. And Laban says, yeah, okay, fine, stay with me, and makes him work and work and work. And eventually they have a feast. And it's said that over a lifetime we work 90,000 hours if we do the, the 95 for 45 years. Probably in those seven years he'd have done at least a quarter of that. Uh, the shepherding work is just sort of relentless, on, ongoing, often mind-numbingly boring as well. And here he, he's done all this. And he gets to the feast, and I imagine there's a lot of alcohol flowing. There's certainly a big veil on the bride and a darkened tent to go into at the end of the evening. And he wakes up and discovers that the woman he's woken up with is not the love of his life, who's made the last seven years feel like a few days to him, like a few days to him. Instead, he's woken up with older sister Leah, who has quote-unquote, weak eyes, which is an interesting description of anyone in terms of their marriability. And so Jacob is there and angry and says, why this? And Laban says, well, it wasn't our custom. You can have Rachel as well. Um, You just have to work another seven years for her again. And he, he agrees to it. His love must have been very strong, It's amazing his anger wasn't higher. Um, He didn't lash out violently or anything. And he works seven more years. And a week week into his first marriage to Leah, he's also married then to Rachel and coping with being a polygamist from the outset of his marriage. Jacob, Laban, the shepherds. What of Rachel and Leah? Well, Nicola, uh, a couple of years ago, did an amazing sermon on Leah, and I recommend having a listen to that again if you uh, are feeling a sympathy for her as this story emerges. It's hard not to be sympathetic to her, isn't it? Here's how the story unfolds for, for Rachel. Rachel's there. Maybe she's getting harassed by shepherds on a regular basis. She's, she's a shepherdess. Taint a great job, really. King David was sent out as a boy to be a shepherd because his brothers had something better to do. They were training to be in the military. Leah's probably got something better to do as the older daughter. Rachel's sent out with the smelly sheep. She's the shepherdess. And yet she's got beauty on her side. She faces daily danger, probably from the shepherds and animals and other things as she protects the sheep. And suddenly she meets this man, presumably much older man, who fools in love with her, head over heels. And she seems to be reciprocating this, judging by the fact that Jacob stays in love with her over the seven years of hard service that he's doing. She then discovers, probably on the wedding day itself, that the man that she thinks she's going to marry isn't going to be her husband at all. Presumably Laban locks her away somewhere or sends her away or does something to stop her ruining the wedding. And uh, she wakes up the next morning to find that her older sister is married to the man who loves her and wondering what her part is going to be. And then to find out that a week later she's going to be married to him as well. Strange mixture of emotions going on in there. I wonder what she was like to live with for those seven years. Was she like the, (laughs) 
I've got Jacob. I wonder who's going to come along for you. Good luck, sister. Hopefully there'll be someone for you soon. You know, that sort of pride and prejudice sort of thing going on uh, of the sister siblings. I wonder what she was like to live with, to cope with for Leah. Certainly as the story pans on next week, we'll see the rivalry between them increases and increases, and they're not the best of sisters to each other. But here, Rachel sort of lands it, and she ends up married to Jacob, and he loves her and cares for her, but doesn't care for Leah. And so final character, Leah, the older sister, weak eyes, which I think is probably a euphemism for not looking as attractive as her sister, judging by the contrast in verse 17. Someone who's felt overlooked, someone who's felt left on the shelf in life, someone who should have all the opportunities of being the older, but everything seems to pass her by. I wonder if she'd heard Jacob tell his stories around the campfire about how he'd tricked Esau out of his blessing, how he tricked Esau out of the birthright with the stew. Maybe she remembered the story about how he dressed up as Esau so that he could get his father's blessing. Maybe Laban heard the story as well. But one way or another, Laban and probably Leah together hatch a plan that she's going to dress up and steal something from deceiver Jacob. Just as Jacob stole from Esau, so Jacob's going to be stolen from now by someone else dressing up and taking what was his. So she dresses up as her sister, goes into his tent, he sleeps with her. Sleeping with her is de facto a marriage. That's the status of sexual intercourse. It's a, it's a married relationship. And they're they're in this relationship now. I wonder how she felt. We know a bit, don't we? Jacob doesn't start to love her just because she slept with him. Who knew? (laughs) So oftentimes that's been hoped for, hasn't it? If only I'll just sleep with him, maybe he'll start to love me then. Well, she has children for him in an era where children were where your wealth, your material wealth, not one, but two, but three boys come her way. And each one, she calls a name that suggests that she knows that she's not loved, that she's not cared for, that she's been overlooked. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. But then, and this is just critical to the story, because this is where God comes into this chapter. She decides in herself that she's not going to be miserable anymore. She's not going to be a victim of her circumstances anymore. She's not going to be under the circumstances. She's going to be above the circumstances. She has some sort of resolution in herself. And I wonder again, looking at the phrase she uses here, whether she makes this resolution because she's heard Jacob talking again. Maybe she's heard Jacob talking about the stairway to heaven. Maybe she's heard him talking about the God, the father of Isaac and the father of Abraham, the God whose name is Yahweh, God. She's heard him talk about this God, maybe in a pillow talk, maybe around the campfire to everyone. And she begins to put her trust and hope and faith in that God, that good father that we sang about earlier. She begins to trust in him and she says, okay, the man I've married may not be up to much, My sister may have all the love. My father may have basically dumped me with no morality whatsoever. (laughs) I may have twisted and gained my own way through life thus far, but now I'm going to put my trust in God. (laughs) 
I'm going to praise the Lord. Verse 35. This time I'll praise the Lord. And at this point she names her boy Judah. And the key thing about this is this child that she praises God for, where she's changed, where she's got this new faith, this child becomes the child of promise. In Jacob's line, there's going to be one child who's going to be the seed from which King David and King Jesus is going to come. One golden thread through history. And it's going to come to this despised woman through the first son that she's able to praise God for. They're not incredible. She changes her perspective, and from her changed perspective starts to come the blessing flowing down and down and down. (laughs) What can we learn from this peculiar chapter in the Scripture for ourselves? Well, from Laban, first of all, there's a thousand lessons in how not to be an appalling boss uh, by reflecting on Laban. Changing the goalpost doesn't go down too well for employees, does it? manipulating and deceiving people. That sort of avarice, the love of money that drives him to even neglect and despise his own daughters. These are all great lessons to not take from Laban and to go in the other direction. The bored shepherds, we could reflect on them in terms of workplace and think, what would it have been like if they'd honored this girl who came their way, if they hadn't given in to their prevailing culture and treated her better. And there's reflections around there. Reflections around how we survive in the workplace if we feel that we're the one harassed as well. There's reflections for Jacob, isn't there? Suddenly he's met his match in life. I wonder if you've ever come up against someone in life where you feel like you really don't like them very much. You've got to imagine that Jacob's not liking Laban very much at all. (laughs) But the main reason he's not going to like him very much, his father-in-law, is because when he looks in the mirror, he's going to see a lot of Laban coming back at him, isn't he? The deceiver, the one who'll dress up to get something that isn't his. The one who's hungering and searching and grabbing after more, 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 more. And Jacob works these 14 years for this man who's very much like him. And actually, it probably does him the world of good probably does in the world of good, takes edges off him. When we come up against something that we dislike often, it niggles away at the hard edges in us, doesn't it? And I wonder if we can work out how to embrace those moments and those people that we instinctively dislike by stopping, (laughs) reflecting, thinking, what is it I dislike about you? Thinking whether it's something that's actually in us as well and allowing God to change us over time to make us more like Jesus and less like the us that we are at the moment. But here, perhaps with Rachel and Leah, is the crutch of this story. Here is the girl who is lovely, but underused in terms of her job and that sort of thing, and the girl who seems unlovely, but is going to get the prize first of all and their relationship running through this. Probably in these two is a focus for our questions on identity. What is it that makes us worthwhile this Fathering Sunday? What is it that gives us approval in our lives? What is it that you get your identity from? If these 
pair were looking for their identity from Father Laban. I don't think there's too much that they can hold on to there, although he's provided for them and kept them in his tents and so forth. Rachel gets her man, gets her love match, but it's not long afterwards that we find that Jacob and Rachel are pretty angry with each other in 30 verses 1 and 2. That Leah gets a relationship with God that spans for centuries beyond and has a legacy. She works out that she's not going to just be under the circumstances, but she's going to rise above them. I wonder for you and for me today, where are we getting our identity from? Is it from our workplaces, our relationships, our parents? Or is it from God? All of the first three help. (laughs) They help. But it's only fundamentally the relationship with God that gives you the strength of unchanging love that means that you can be all right regardless of what life circumstances come your way. Life throws up some horrible knocks along the way. Scott Peck said, as people who understand that life is difficult begin to grow and get through life. Life is difficult. But when we realize that there is a heavenly father who loves us unquestionably and always and forever, life begins to make more sense and we start to make progress. And just look what Leah achieved by praising God for that fourth son of hers. If it takes you four times to get it right, don't worry. (laughs) There's good precedent there. Keep going and find a place where you can praise God despite the circumstances as well as in the circumstances.